this afternoon. We have uh, our time with Dr. Hughes once again. And uh, if you have any questions, again, we'll have a Q&A session after that. But I want to hand over the time to him. Right. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Pastor. In this session, as you've noticed, we're going to be talking about the discipline of church. And um, it's great. It's a prelude to tomorrow when we gather together with God's people. And, uh, and in fact, of the spiritual and existential reality that we are members of the body of Christ. Our, our text that we're going to be looking at uh, today will be Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 22 through 24. It's going to be the central text uh, to what we're doing. We'll have a partial exposition of that and then um, a lot of application. Observers are becoming increasingly aware that the doctrine of the church has become progressively weakened and in some cases abandoned. The doctrine of the church has been abandoned by evangelicals. Now, um, Bob Patterson was a member of my church some years ago, and uh, Bob Patterson, Robert W. Patterson, was then associate to the executive director of the National Association of Evangelicals, and he wrote an article in Christianity Today, and he said this, when President Dwight Eisenhower became a Christian, he made a public profession of faith in Christ which I didn't know anything about. That was news to me. He was baptized and was extended the right hand of fellowship the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., the second Sunday after his inauguration in 1953. So, however true it was, he made an ostensible profession of Christ as a mature man long after his career when he'd been elected to the White House in 1953. Had the former president expressed interest in becoming a Christian a generation later under more consciously evangelical auspices, he might never have been challenged to identify with the body of Christ through baptism and church membership. A personal relationship with Jesus, he would have been told, is all that really matters. Now, I have to say, I wholeheartedly agree that a personal relationship with Jesus, being truly regenerate, is ultimately all that really matters. Because we lost. But, having said that, we mustn't mistakenly reason that one's relationship with Christ minimizes the importance of the church. And that's precisely what multitudes of Christians do today. They assume and they act out this casual church. Big idea? Well, big deal. So that church attendance is blanketed with a pall which has introduced an army of, of uh, church hitchhikers. Now, the hitchhiker's thumb says this. You buy the car. You pay for repairs. You keep up the upkeep and insurance. And, and you fill the car with gas, and that's a big deal today. And I'll ride with you. But if you have an accident, you're on your own. And guess what? I'll probably sue. And so it is with many of today's church attenders. 
you go to the board meetings, you serve on the boards and committees, you grapple with the issues, you do the work of the church, you pay the bills, and I'll come along for a ride. But if things don't suit me, I'll criticize and complain and probably bail. Because you see, my thumb is always out for a better ride, a more comfortable ride. So a conditional loyalty is fueled today by a consumer McDonald's, McChurch mentality, which picks and chooses here and there to fill your church shopping list. Now, there are church hitchhikers who will attend one church for the preaching, send their children to a second church for the youth group, and attend uh, another church's small groups. That's, that's a fact. I'm not, that's not some sort of straw man that I've created. Pollster George Barnes supports this saying, the average adult thinks that belonging to church is good for other people, but represents unnecessary bondage and baggage for himself. So today, as we begin this millennium, we have a phenomenon unthinkable in any other century, and that is churchless Christians. There is a vast herd of professed Christians who exist as nomads, as hitchhikers, without accountability, without discipline, hear that, without discipleship, and living apart from the regular benefits of the Lord's table. And to borrow from Cyprian's idea, this ancient wording, They have God as their father, but they reject the church as their mother and, as a result, are incomplete oddities. Now, as to why this has happened, why this hard time has come, church historians will tell us that one of the things, especially among evangelicals, is a right um, emphasis upon the church being the invisible body of Christ. Because if you think in terms of of church history, you would have, say, the visible body down into the dark ages, but we understand, stepping back in the Reformation, that not everybody within that visible body were regenerate. In fact, uh, probably a declining minority were. And so the emphasis would be on true believers, the invisible body of Christ. And in fact, you have to be a part of the invisible body of Christ, so to speak, to be part of the body of Christ. But, because you're a member in the invisible body, it's never contemplated that you would be divorced from the visible body of Christ. That's a possibility. I mean, I'm a Christian, so what's the big deal? Another reason for the dechurching of many is the historic individualism of Americans. Uh, grassroots uh, aversion to authority and, and individualism thinking, well, I know Christ, all I need is my reference Bible and I can ride out into the Badlands like the Lone Ranger. And uh, in fact, that's best. Now, that, that cavalier disregard for the church uh, is eccentric, to say the least. It disregards not only Scripture, but Some of the teaching of the great doctors of the church. St. Augustine in his handbook 
holds up the visible church, referring to it as the church without whom there is no forgiveness of sin. He couldn't conceive of being a forgiven believer and being consciously separate from the church. He said the deserter of the church cannot be in Christ since he is not among Christ's members. You can see how his mind thinks. It could be, but you can see what he was thinking. Martin Luther, stepping in the Reformation, said, Outside this Christian church there is no salvation or forgiveness of sins, but everlasting death and damnation, even though there may be a magnificent appearance of holiness. He couldn't conceive of it. Now, John Calvin, in the fourth, uh, chapter 1 of the fourth book of the Institutes, titles it, The True Church with Which, as Mother of All the Godly, we must keep unity, and so it goes. Go right down to the Westminster Confession, the British divines, the visible church out of which there is no ordinary possibility of, of, of salvation. So you can see the thinking. So the church hitchhikers, church hopping wanderers, spiritual lone rangers, Christians who disdain membership are aberrations on the whole grid of church history. And I would have to say, in grievous danger and in great error. And what I think we need to do is be blasted out of our delusions by an understanding of the great doctrine of the church. And, brothers and sisters, there is no text that will make this reality detonate with such power as those seven stupendous encounters which Christians experienced in the church had described in Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. So I hope you have your Bibles open there. It may be little different translations and variations here, but you'll see the same thing. What I want to say is there's no small thoughts here. Um, coming, having lived in the city of Chicago for a number of years, uh, I'm grateful to a man by the name of Daniel Burnham who, who laid out the city of Chicago with all of its uh, uh, possibilities uh, with the parks. Uh, 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 Grant Park on the south, Lincoln Park on the north, the downtown uh, area of Streeterville, the way it's all laid out is absolutely fantastic in the grid. And, uh, and I love Daniel Burnham's statement. He said, Think no small thoughts. They have no magic within them to inspire the hearts of men. Well, we're going to something far greater, and I want to say, think no small thoughts here. There is no reality within them to inspire the body of Christ. In other words, if they're small thoughts. These are, there are no small thoughts here. So as you look at Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, we first come to the city of God. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now, Mount Zion was the location of the mountain stronghold which David captured and made the religious center of Israel when he brought in the ark of God's presence. And when Solomon built the temple and installed the ark, Zion, Jerusalem, became synonymous with the earthly dwelling place of God. And so in the church, we come to the heavenly counterpart of Zion, the spiritual Jerusalem from above, the true city of God. So when you gather together in your church tomorrow, 
when you gather together in Living Hope Bible Church, you come to the city of God. Christians are now presently citizens of the heavenly city and enjoy its privileges. We ought to understand that when we come to church. We're coming to the city of God and the citizens of the city of God. Second, as a church, we meet angels. See the next line? You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Now, that's an awesome statement. Uh, Moses, at the giving of the law, is said to have been attended by myriads of holy ones, angels, untold numbers of angels, Deuteronomy 32.2. So, at Sinai, there were numberless angels around that mountain as uh, the lightning struck and restruck overhead and the flames went up to heaven and the shofars blared. Myriads of holy ones. And then from the book of Daniel, we hear that thousands upon thousands attended him. That's the ancient of day. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. That's Daniel 7.10. Attending God. Attending the ancient of days. King David said, Psalm 68, 17, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. And so you can see the fiery vans of the angels, thousands and thousands. Now, in church, we come to these thousands of angels, all of whom are in joyful celebration. Now, when I was uh, pastoring in Wheaton, and had Wheaton College right across the street. And Dwayne Lipton was then the president of Wheaton College. Uh, we had breakfast one morning, and he had on his mind this whole thing. And he began to wax expansively about the wonders of corporate worship and how angels join us in worship. He actually referred to 1 Peter 1, I think it's verses 9 and 10, about angels stooping down uh, looking in on what is going on. That angels are everywhere, he said. Mighty flaming spirits, Hebrews 1.14, ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. In a sense, passing in and out and moving around us. And, and Dwayne Lippin said, the, the early church understood this, and we forget it. Well, you know what? It's what it says here. We come to myriads of angels. And so, now this is just my imagination because I don't think angels have feathered wings, you know. But so my imagination, if I want to kind of think that way, I could say they walk up and down the aisles and if we had eyes to see, we could see them. We could hear the rustle of their wings. That they really do exist and they really are with the body of Christ. And as we're gathered here now, I think that there are angels in attendance if we have the spiritual eyes to see. Um, It was uh, George Herbert who said, uh, Sundays observe, tis angels' music, therefore come not late. In other words, get there for the celebration in the presence of angels. We come, it says in our text, to thousands of angels 
upon thousands in joyful, joyful assembly. Third, we come to co-heirs, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. We say, what does that mean? Church of the firstborn. Well, let me explain. In fact, take your Bibles and just for a second, turn over the book of Colossians. You have that great hymn to the cosmic Christ that begins in verse 15 and actually uh, runs mm, probably down through 20. It's hard to say, but it begins by saying about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Then it goes on to talk about what He did, Jesus Christ's work in creation. But the first thing it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. What's the firstborn? The firstborn in, in biblical language is the firstborn son who inherits all things. Everything goes to him. So he's heir of everything in the universe. And then it goes on to talk about him being the cosmic creator of everything. And notice it goes on to say... For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. goes on to talk about him being head of the church. Now, I want you to think about this as a cosmic creator before I go back to him being the firstborn. If I... Uh, was here on earth and um, and I decided and I was launched out somehow at the speed of light as I mentioned it would take a hundred years to get to the edge of the Milky Way with a hundred thousand million stars in our galaxy it would take a hundred years the speed of light but let's say um, I've got uh, Captain Kirk's Starship Enterprise and uh, so I turn it up to warp speed 8 so that the galaxies start to fly by like fence posts. I mean, there's, there's a great imagination for you. Maybe turn it up a little higher. And so I, I travel out across uh, the Milky Way and then I make a right turn. And at warp speed 8, I, I go for uh, 20 years at warp speed 8 out towards the edge of the universe. And I make a left-hand turn and I and I come to some backwater in space, and I find a piece of solar dust. If I read what the text says, it was created by Christ. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then he talks about whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created. It says by Him, and here through Him, and for him, and toward him. So that everything in the universe is created by him, as I said. So that means that he made the fires of Arcturus, our closest star, and the fires of a firefly, and the stripes on a bumblebee. Every texture, every color, everything is created by him. And if I read my Bible correctly, somehow is sustained by him. That's how immense Christ is. 
And that's an awesome thing to think about in the incarnation when he became one of us in this little dim little earth in our solar system at this edge of the galaxy. But the point is, as a cosmic Christ created all things, go back to verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He not only created everything, but that he is heir of everything, the firstborn son. Now, Jesus was the firstborn son and heir of everything in the universe. And by virtue of our union with him, we are all firstborn. That makes sense? So everything that's his has been given to us. And when I look around this room, there are no second born, born here. We're all, and ladies, the son image has to do with it's not a gender thing so much as firstborn. We are all firstborn sons, ladies. We are all number one heirs. That's an, that's an awesome thing that we're saying. You know, in, in uh, 1 John uh, uh, 1, 3 and 4, when he says, In these things we write to you that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, it also tells us we've been adopted into the fellowship of the Holy Trinity. These things we write to you, you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship, says John, is with the Father and the Son. I mean, this is stupendous. So you are all firstborn, and all of us, rich beyond the dreams of Croesus, and we always will be, there are no second or thirdborn, all are firstborn. I mean, really, the reality of that just ought to lay us out on our faces. Fourth, we come to God. You've come to God, the judge of all men. We come in awe to God because He's God and because He's judge, but we don't come in utter dread because His Son has borne the judgment for us. Uh, we embrace the Scripture's call, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is our highest delight, to come before Him, to gather before Him. And we do this in the body of Christ. Fifth, we come to the church triumphant. You see that line, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Now, I mentioned last night about my dear administrative assistant, Sharon Fritz, that lovely woman finally succumbed to leukemia two days ago, and she's with the Lord. And she's part of the church triumphant, those that have died and gone before. Um, now, Though the church triumphant is in heaven, we share solidarity with those that have gone before because the same spiritual life that courses in them courses in us. Isn't that something? Same life that's in Paul and Peter and John and Aunt Jane and Uncle Jim that are now in heaven courses with us. We share the same secrets and joys, the same life of Abraham and Moses and David and Paul and Peter. The spirits of righteous 
made perfect by the blood of Christ. And six, we come to Jesus. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, he's talking about the new covenant there. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup, and you know the words because they are words that we repeat at the Lord's table. He held it up and he says, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. And what he was saying is that the new covenant that was prophesied by Jeremiah, in, uh, by the Spirit in Jeremiah 31, about having new hearts, about having the Spirit, about having everyone knowing the Lord, and you don't have to say know the Lord, about having the law written in your heart, that that has taken place so that all of us know the Lord from the greatest to the least, that Jesus is the dispenser and blessing of the new covenant. Isn't that something? All the blessings, the new covenant of life. And seventh, we come to forgiveness because of the sprinkled blood. You see that line, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Abel's blood, shed by Cain, cries out for judgment. But Christ's blood shouts that we are forgiven and have peace with God. So, it tells us that as Christians right now, we've come to seven sublime realities. The city of God, to myriads of angels, to firstborn fellow heirs, to God the judge of all, to the church triumphant, to Jesus, and then forgiveness. No small thoughts. I mean, if that doesn't raise a wellspring in our hearts about what we have in Christ, I don't know what will. John Bunyan, they say, once told of falling into despondency which lasted for several days, and well, he could have. You remember, he's the the blacksmith, the Bedford tinker who... uh, because he was preaching the gospel from his Geneva Bible, uneducated as he was, uh, spent a good portion of his life in jail where he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. But he said that he was, he was despondent and he was desperately seeking a word for God as he was in jail repeatedly and for so long. And he had his Bible and he came to this grand text, Hebrews 12:22 to 24. And here's what Bunyan wrote about that night in jail. But that night was a good night to me. I have had but few better. I long for the company of some of God's people that I might have imparted unto them what God had showed me. Christ was a precious Christ to my soul that night. I could scarce lie in bed for my joy and peace and triumph through Christ. I'm with John Newton. Savior, if of Zion City, I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glorify in thy name. What a wonder we have. And these dazzling images rain down on us through the New Testament as the church were actually the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. Here's the metaphors. We're His temple. 
We're His bride. We're His sheep. We're the branches. I have to say, no small thoughts. Holding up the church. And the immense truths tell us this, that the church will outlast the world. You. Your body. In Christ. Your people will outlast the world. Harry Blamires wrote, The world is like a great express train hurtling towards disaster. Perhaps toward total destruction. And in this truly desperate situation, certain passengers are running up and down the corridors announcing to each other that the church is in great danger. He says, the irony of it would be laughable if it were not so pathetic. Why, he says, most of the church's members have already gotten out in stations en route. These last centuries. And we ourselves shall be getting out soon anyway. And if the crash comes and the world is burnt to ashes, the only thing that will survive disaster will, of course, be the church. Capitol Hill is not going to survive. The Houses of Congress are not going to survive. The Parliament is not going to survive. The European Union is not going to survive because the church is larger than the world itself. That's the enduring fact of our existence. Massive doctrine of the church. Well, given, given the magnitude of the doctrine of the church, it's ironic as the scant allegiance is given to the church. Pollster George Barna notes that, again, the average adult thinks that belonging to church is good for other people, but represents unnecessary bondage and baggage for himself today. Baggage. Bondage. Droves of professing Christians who have never been committed to the local expression of Christ's body and never intend to be so. I think that the great doctrine here is a, a, a warning to all that hitchhiking and lack of commitment to the local body of Christ is not an option. And here, I'm not talking up Living Hope Bible Church. I am talking up commitment. If that's where you attend, commit yourself to it. If you attend this church right here, commit yourself to it. Don't have your thumb out. Hitchhiking. Now, the Scriptures are most explicit regarding the necessity of church. Hebrews 12.25 Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another. And all the more, as you see the day, that is the day of Christ approaching. So this straightforward exhortation ought to be enough in itself. But there are several powerful reasons. Not at least, as Cyprian once argued, we all need a mother. We need a place where we're nurtured. Now, one of the reasons... 
one of the subjective, subjective personal reasons that I'm so passionate about this is what the church has meant to me. Uh, I, uh, and I, let's put it this way, I was uh, 12 years old, just become 12 years old. Uh, my father uh, had uh, died when I was four years old. Um, we had not attended churches where I heard the gospel clearly. And by a series of events, my mother, who I don't think was a Christian then, began to take us to a church plant that had about 40 people in it. I was the sole young man in that church. There was a teenager, a teenage woman in the church, and a guy that was older, but I was 12 years old. I had, there was nobody else in church. And, and when you're 12 years old, do you know how old a 30-year-old looks to you? <laughs> I mean, they look, they, they look scary old. They look like they're ready to die, you know. And so I was surrounded. I'm sure it was young families, but, but uh, I was with all these older people who looked like grandmas and grandpas to me. And here I'm with this little guy walking around. And, and they knew Jesus. And I knew I didn't know Jesus. And, and I, I felt like I was like on a dark night looking through in lighted windows. I wanted what they had, but I didn't think it could happen to me. It's not a funny thing to think when you're that old. But I didn't think it could happen to me. Well, after I'd been there for summer, I went to a church camp up in the Sierras, up in Sequoias, and I, I wanted it. I heard the gospel. I went to my pastor who was preaching that night, who was then a young man. I think he was about 28 years old. Today, he's 85 years old. And I told him I didn't know Jesus, and he, he uh, had me open my Bible to Romans 12, 1 and, uh, excuse me, Romans 10, 9, and 10 in the King James, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart, thou shalt be saved. And man, I was saved. I was, I mean, I love the word saved. I was saved. I was regenerated. The, light, the word became real. It was like I'd read, uh, I, I, I went to my sleeping bag that night and I, underlying verses that they told me with my flashlight on inside my sleeping bag because it was lights out. And I, and I still have that little India page Bible that I had. And I, I underline uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10, and Philippians 1, 6, and John 3, 16. I still have it. And you know, I'm gonna, I was talking about how the mind works, what a computer it is. Do you know what a 12-year-old sleeping bag smells like at the end of a week at camp? Oh. Uh, if I smell that sour tennis shoe smell, it takes me right back to when I got saved. <laughs> I should keep a locker in my, uh, in my study to, uh, to remind me of it. And I was saved. Well, you know what happened is the church was my family. And uh, I was lovingly led to Christ by Pastor Verl Lindley. I was lovingly nurtured through my youth workers, Howard and Ruby Bussey. By the way, Ruby Bussey went to be of the Lord this last week at 82 years old. She's with the church triumphant. The church gave me the milk of the word through the strong teaching of my college Sunday school teacher, Robert Seeley, who was an insurance salesman and loved the book of Romans. I, I, when I got, into, uh, got out of high school and went into college, he taught Romans 
my first year in college, Romans my second year in college, Romans my third year and my fourth year. And when I wrote my commentary on Romans years later, I, I dedicated it to Robert Roman Seeley. Robert is 89 today. I got an email from him this week. He said, isn't it hilarious? He said, I might go be, live to be 90. Um, the church was the womb and cradle for my wife, Garfield Baptist Church in North Long Beach. When my children uh, came, the church stood with me as I dedicated my children to God. She's the mother, the church is, of my best friend, David MacDonald. I was best man in his wedding. He was best man in mine, my good buddy. I owe everything to the body of Christ. My life, my character such as it is, my worldview, my mission's worldview, my calling, my vision, my hope. So that's why I believe in the church. Subjectively. Well, then understanding then that we need the mothering of the church, we must also understand that we'll never benefit it apart from commitment to the church. We're not going to be what we ought to be and what we can be and what we should be apart from commitment to the local body, warts and all, imperfections and all. The entire Christian life is about commitment, commitment to Christ, commitment to the church, commitment to my family, commitment to marriage, commitment to friendship, commitment to ministry, all commitment. Um, commitment to the good times and the bad times. That's what makes a marriage grow and brings the greatest fulfillment. And I want to say, on the most elementary level, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And you don't have to go home to be married either. But if you don't go home, it makes a pretty rough relationship church. So among the growth inducing benefits of commitment is this. I'll say worship. Having your soul swept up to God in a unique elevating power of corporate worship. Uh, it's, it's one thing. Like I don't sing that well. It's one thing to sing by myself, you know. Uh, not very good. It's another thing to be standing with the body of Christ on the Lord's Day and kind of being lifted up together corporately and singing. Something happens to you. Martin Luther said, when I'm alone at my, by myself, there's no spark. But when I come together with the body of Christ, there is. Do you realize in that what takes place when you're singing together or when the word is read and you, you hear it read and you all assent to it? When the pastor leads in prayer, you all say amen together. And then when you're sitting under the word and the word's being preached and there's a, a brother over here that's going, uh, I had one that would always go, uh, and uh, another person over here says amen or smiles and you're all affirming it together. What happens, it elevates everybody. Isn't that right? Let me just give you a, 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 another illustration of it. It's one thing to go home and a music lover and listen to Beethoven on your system, maybe a great system. It's another thing to go somewhere with a whole room full of music lovers and listen to it live, isn't it? 
the body of Christ. What a, what a wonderful benefit that is. And then attendance to the Lord's table. So that you're refreshed by the atoning work of Christ. Now, this is a hymn by Bernard de Clairvaux. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's at the end of the service, the word has been preached. Uh, pastor holds up the cup of the new covenant, quotes Jesus' words. This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And you all drink together. Maybe there's some silence. And you reflect. You're taken back to the very ground of your salvation. I think of Bernard of Clairvaux's words, We drink of thee the fountainhead and long to drink. I long to drink from thee still. Well, there I go. And long to... Well, oh gosh. I've got it all backwards. And thirst our souls from thee to fill. And then the bread. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. Isn't that, doesn't that say it for our hearts? That's what we like. And we're taken back to the very root of salvation. And then a, a, a discipleship. Because as you're committed to the church through its ups and downs, an appropriate deepening takes place, which a committed heart will never know. You commit yourself to the body of Christ. You commit yourself to sorrow. And you commit yourself to joy. You commit yourself to a wild ride as you're committed to the body of Christ. Joy and woe are woven fine, a mantle for the soul divine. It's true. And then vision for mission. As one remains committed, a supernatural vision for life takes place, mission. Now, this isn't, this isn't uh, bragging. Uh, if you take it that way, it sounds it, it, you're going to take it the wrong way. But church I was raised in was committed to missions. We had a faith promise thing where we'd, you know, make our promises and then we'd all give. And it was a great missions church. Huge part of the budget went to missions. Well, when I came to college church, we uh, we set it set in a policy that we wanted to have parity between. Uh, our, our giving to ministry for the church and giving to missions. We wanted it to become equal someday, and we began to work towards it, okay? And, um, and it was a missions church well before I ever came, so they were committed to missions. But we worked at it, and during my tenure, we would be 45 for, uh, uh, 45 for missions, 55 for ministry, 48 for missions, 52 for ministry. Never quite got that 50-50. Well, I left uh, four years ago, and I was just reading the report, and my I jumped out of my skin because they made it 50-50. In 2010, College Church gave $3.3 million to world missions and spent $3 million on themselves for ministry. Isn't that amazing? And do you realize what that, that means? How much are they going to give in the next decade to world missions? Well, they say static, $30 million. That's all. Isn't that amazing? And I, and I root some of that back in what I learned in my church. Your vision for mission. And, and Pastor, you were talking to me how 
in, in your fellowship, you keep having people, it's got, they get turned on, they, get edu- they say, oh, I'm going to go do missions over here, I'm going to do ministry over here, and you miss them, but you're saying at the same time, that's one of the great things. Because that's in the DNA of this church. You see? That's what happens to people here. So, you need the church because the scriptures, first of all, say you do. And secondly, because you need a mother. And thirdly, because without commitment, you won't become what you ought to become. Whoever we are, whether we're president or a business executive, a military officer, a physician, a leader, a parachurch organization, the church needs to be at the center of our life. Committed to her and her ups and downs that church hiking is an aberration. So I want to say, and this gets really right down to it, you need to commit yourself to the regular attendance on the worship services of your church. Your, your schedule, your iPhone ought to reflect a commitment. And I would say even when you travel, you ought to attempt to schedule yourself to be back in church if you can. Or attend when you're on the road. And I want to say if you're not a church member... You need to covenant to join and commit yourself to supporting the church and submitting to your, her discipline. This is a great thing. If you join, guess what? You're under the discipline of the leadership of the church. So I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. That's a grace. To have someone who will call you up short on your ethics or when you need some domestic help or other things. You're under the discipline. It's a positive thing. We think of that word negatively too. That type of discipline is not. It's positive. It's a beautiful thing. Be committed to the church. And then your commitment must go beyond attendance and membership. You must participate in her life, which means serving you with your talents that God has given you. And then, here's where it really meets the road. You need to support your church first. Now, I have... Some outside commitments. I have friends that are in other ministries, but my 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 uh, first allegiance is to the local body. I think a good place to begin. It's, this is this is not. It doesn't say to give ten percent. Doesn't say anything like that. We're to be generous, but that would be a good starting point. And finally, you need to pray for her. You need to love her and pray for her. Timothy Dwight heir of the Puritans, and the greatest president of Yale University, who led a revival there, gave this love and prayer immortal expression. And you know it. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. To her, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. The church, it's only the city of God. It's only the presence of thousands of angels. It's only the fellowship of the firstborn. It's only the presence of God the judge. It's only fellowship with the church triumphant. It's only Jesus and the new covenant. It's only a sprinkled blood. That's all. No small thoughts. Um... I'll just, I'll just close with this. And, and you that are young, really listen to this. 
I mean, I'm not looking at you. So, uh, but uh, heads up. I, I'm thir- 12 and a half, 13 years old. I trust in Christ. Um, I blink my uh, eyes and it's early 1962 and I'm standing pledging my uh, love to my wife in 62. A uh, year later, well, baby Holly comes like a hot star fallen from heaven. You know. I blink my eyes again and guess what? I'm in Illinois, not in California. I'm holding another baby and that's the child of that baby Holly. Young Brian, another hot star fallen from heaven. I blink my eyes again and I'm performing young Brian's wedding ceremony and not even a blink another year later and I'm holding that great grandchild and guess what I got about two blinks and I'm with Jesus I'm out of here <laughs> that's how fast it goes am I right you're older I mean you need to hear these words love the body of Christ because this is where you'll get loved you'll get discipled you get taught you get formed you get your vision it's where you will uh, uh, have your passions for Christ formed, and this is where your lifelong friendships will be, and it's going to fly by as if you are in warp speed eight. The years are going to fly by like fence posts on a Illinois road at 90 miles an hour. That's how fast it's going to go. And only what's done for Christ will last. Amen. Well, what we're uh, going to do is, uh, do you have any questions or whatnot? We'll take about five minutes, and then we're going to take a quick break. But any questions or feedback, thoughts you might have, come on over. I'll bring you the mic. Good to see you, too. Uh, you mentioned commitment to the church or to a church. What are some keys that um, we should be looking for? in a church to commit to. All right. Is that what, uh, Commitment to church, what should we be looking for in a church to commit to? I'll, I'll carefully say the first part of it, is that if, if you're in a church that is, is not preaching the word and not preaching the gospel, I think it might be a good time to look for another church because you need to have that I, I, and I assume you're not, but I'm, I'm just saying this generally to everyone here because I could be interpreted to say, "Stay where you are. I don't care what it's like." You know, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but if you're looking for perfection in your church, uh, that's a big mistake too. And you know, you know the cliche: if it's a perfect church and you join it, it'll no longer be perfect. <laughs> so. Uh, so you know what I'm saying. You're not going to find perfection. There's always going to be something lacking in the body, something that needs to be fixed up. I mean, a church is, that's just the nature of church. And there's sinners in the church. And it is a hospital. And it is a place where a lot of us are on crutches. It's all of those things. But I would say uh, several things. One is, is that it, 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 it needs to be word-centered, and I don't mean it in a cold, esoteric way, but I mean the Bible needs to be the center of your authority in the church. And when the pastor preaches, 
from the Bible. He needs to be here. The Bible's here and the people's here. So often today, the Bible's here, the pastor's here, and the people are out there. Well, we don't preach ourselves. So it's, it's got to be a place where you're fed from the Word. Not where it's played with, but you're fed from the Word. That's one. It, it needs to be a church that understands that when you've got the Word, you equally emphasize the Holy Spirit. You've got the Word, the Gospel. Well, the Spirit is the author of the Word. It's the breath of God upon the pages of Scripture. And when you have a fullness of the Word, you're going to have a fullness of the Spirit with the people. So that kind of thing. That's, that's one of the things. Another thing I would say, and this is uh, very important, is that your leadership in that church, they're never perfect. But they need to live lives that are consistent with the gospel and with Christ. Um, in other words, their ethos in their life and their character should represent the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Godliness. That's tied up with the gospel. Um, those, would, those would be the things. And then I would say, with all of that, gospel, Christ gospel-centered. You know, Paul says, and this is my gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins or my sins according to the scriptures and he was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures that the gospel needs to be preached in all of its power from the scriptures the death, the atoning death of Christ is imputed righteousness and his resurrection in victory and believe me it's not always there in a church the gospel Needs to be there. You've got to be gospel people. Intoxicated with the gospel. Um, and, then, you know, you've got other things. There's some good things to look about organizationally and so on. But um, I can say I was in a church that didn't have a youth group. It, it did grow to have one as I grew. But the, but the great thing was is I, I was in great shape. I had, all these, I had all these mothers and grandmothers and everything else trying to mother me. And uh, I may have been 12 years old, but I wasn't dumb. I liked it all, you know. I enjoyed it. And so you have that kind of thing. That's, that's a partial answer to it. I was just thinking, uh, Joe, it, forever, it's, it's not a matter of, of your church or someone else's church, but if this, if this thing took hold with people where they had that kind of commitment to the body of Christ, the gospel would go out power because God's way is to do the gospel through the body of Christ out to the world. That's how it happens. Missionaries go, preachers go, people win people. That's what happens when, uh, when the ship's in and when the tide's in, all the ships ride high. So. Just a quick question about um, you shared about being in a church plant and if anyone is in a newer church, uh, well obviously this one is still uh, being housed in a high school and and in some ways can feel transitional. 
what it, what kind of things did you meet with commitment to the local body, even in your experience uh, of church planning? Because I know, I would say, uh, me being part of one as well, that that is that is uh, one of the biggest things of church is getting that core to own own the church and be committed to that local yeah. body. So I'm just wondering what your experience was in that. Well, if if it's a, if it's a, if it's a church that doesn't have a long institutional history, if it's just a new church, you've got to be very, very clear about what you're about and what your priorities are. And they need to be defined by the Bible. You know, I mean, if I was just saying off the top of my head, it would be Christ-centered. I didn't say God-centered. I said Christ-centered on the Messiah. It needs to be Bible-centered. It needs to be discipleship-centered. It needs to be character-centered needs to be prayer-centered, needs to be, you know, that, that type of thing. But to define those things, because uh, sometimes if you get a, uh, a small body together, you'll get a few people that have got, well, I, here, here we've got 30 people. It's my opportunity to go off on this exotic idea that I have, and they try to impose it on the group. You want to stay balanced in that thing and always be assessing your vision and refining your vision. And uh, so that that's what I would say. Yeah. Um, with your talk about <laughs> how the church today, a lot of places, um, you know, with the uh, hobo churchgoers and non-members, and when you have churches with, um, you know, half half of the congregation there's members and half of them aren't members, and yeah. how do you? Um, Institute church discipline and that sort of thing when, yeah. when it's not a very clear yeah. who's who's who and what in the first place. Well, I, I'm not familiar with the polity of this church or the ones that are here, but normally when you join a church, you commit yourself to the discipline of the leadership of the church as it is here administered. You make a covenant to do that. If you don't join... It's like it's like the last verse in the book of Judges. Every man does what's right in his own eyes, and so uh, that's one of the that's you. You don't have the benefit of discipline, of living under discipline, unless you join a church, and we need it. I need it, and so that's a that's a saving thing. That's a wonderful thing. So. When you got half the people that aren't, I would I would encourage church membership, and then I would I'd lay out all of what it is, you know. So you, it's a great opportunity to say this is what this church is about. These are our priorities. This is what this is what we believe doctrinally. This is what we do about missions. This is what we believe about the preaching of the word, and and uh, and then if you see that you join, you commit yourself to that, and you just don't walk. When, uh, when things get rough, you stay with it. I I will say when I when I did a church plant, I would have it was a hard thing. I'd have a family that had children, and they get to be junior high age or high school age, and they come and they say, Pastor, uh, we love your preaching, we love the church, but there's nothing for our kids here, so they go to another church. Well, my neighboring church was. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, the First Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton, which had mega everything. 
And um, I just would say, uh, I think a child, I think a high school or junior higher can prosper in a church that doesn't have a youth work. I think you can prosper. It is, it is the body of Christ. I have a couple of buddies that planted, we planted a church from the suburbs in the city of Chicago, right next to the University of Chicago in Hyde Park. And when we planted it, uh, John Dennis and David Helm had little, little ones. Well, the, the kids have grown up. Church is about 100 people. They've never had a youth work, and their kids are on fire for the Lord. Uh, three of them are off to university doing great stuff, you know, on fire for the Lord. I mean, you can prosper. So, you know, don't, don't just go, oh, I, I like it here, but, and, uh, but my kids need, uh, need a youth group. Uh, I'm not sh- I, I, I would question that thesis, you know. Remember, youth groups are, uh, they're an invention of the last century. Just remember that. And I was a youth pastor for a decade. Uh, in the 60s, with a tie-dyed T-shirt, sandals, long sideburns, <laughs> rabbit skin covered Bible. So, you know. I told them to leave that at home this yeah. morning. All right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you've been around for a while. What, what, kind, of ch- <laughs> what, kind, of ch- yeah. what kind of changes have you seen as far as challenges for you know, the youth uh, uh, from back when you were well, a kid to I, now. I would say this about the youth, uh, uh, and, and you know, if you're a, if you're a, a young student here, I think you'll agree with this. Uh, I think if you go back, well, to the early '60s at least, that today's junior high student is as socially aware and carnally aware of the world as somebody in high school, halfway through high school. They have heard it all, seen it all, and I think it's, I think it's toughest as a junior high student. That's what I think. I don't think it ever gets easy for students in high school and junior high, but I think it's very, very tough today. There needs to be a great emphasis in prayer for your young students because they're under pressures that uh, are unbelievable. And... Uh, the culture, the depravity of the culture has moved down. They know about, they're probably, for the average 12-year-old, there isn't a perversion or a sex act that they haven't heard about or know somebody that's doing. And then I'm talking about dope and everything. So, you know, you really have to, to understand that with your students and um, pray for them be the body of Christ. Uh, it's not easy. But that goes by fast, too, doesn't it? It's only about a half a blink and you're through high school, and then another half blink, you're out of university if you go, and you're on your way. So I don't know if that was encouraging. <laughs> okay, we have one more session after this. Thank you very much. I want to... Uh, Encourage everyone. We're going to take a short 10-minute break and move on to the discipline of ministry. So feel free to...